Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 36th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, I wanted to share a few updates. Recently, NCSEA hosted the seventh installment of our Making Energy Work webinar series with a focus on investment capital in clean energy, where we featured Terry Vishwanath of CoBank, one of the largest institutional investors in clean energy infrastructure, and Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital. Yes, that Jigger Shaw from the Energy Gang. Also, shout out to the Energy Gang listeners tuning in here today. So if you missed that webinar and you've got a bunch of money burning a hole in your pocket looking for a home, tune in for some very good clean energy investment advice. Also, if you're looking for some grade A content, we're hosting our next webinar on October 15th, focused on utility integrated resource planning. In this webinar, sponsored by Pinegate Renewables, our friend Steve Levitis will be moderating a conversation around the evolution of utility planning with the ever-decreasing costs of clean energy resources across the board. To register for that webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. In this episode today, we're going back to school. Well, kind of. We're actually sitting down with our friends at two universities here in North Carolina to talk about how educational institutions are integral to meeting our state's carbon reduction goals. If you think about it, most of our colleges and universities are big enough to operate as their own cities or towns. So they play an important role in moving the needle forward in clean energy adoption. So let's bust out our letterman's jacket, tee up the marching band, and kick off this next episode. Clean energy. All right, and our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast has spent 14 years teaching sustainable buildings in Appalachian State University's Department of Sustainable Technologies and the Built Environment. His scholarly work focuses on sustainability leadership, sustainability literacy, the valuation of sustainability, biophilic, ecophilic design, and change agency related to community engagement. He is also the co-chair and a founding member of Appalachian State University's Sustainability Council. He is an integral part of the university's leadership and is involved with many decisions related to campus master planning and strategic planning. Friends of the pod, welcome our next guest, Lee Ball, Chief Sustainability Officer at Appalachian State University. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here. In full disclosure to all listeners of the podcast, I am an alumnus of Appalachian State as well, so my loyalty definitely pays homage to uh, campus here. So you might hear that uh, in and out of the podcast uh, today. Um, So looking at the bigger picture here, Appalachian State put together its first climate action plan back in 2010, uh, which was pretty ahead of the times at that point. Uh, So now you're in the process of putting together your second climate action plan. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit more about where you are in meeting the goals that were set forth in that first plan that was put together in 2010 and where you are in the process of drafting this new climate action plan? Sure, Matt. Uh, you know, back in 2010, that was a pretty busy time for campus sustainability. And um, a lot of campuses were creating climate action plans and sustainability plans. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, ambitious goals set forth during those, uh, you know, during that time. And, but, you know, like today, those that were involved were really chasing the carbon. So the, you know, the first step was really identifying the problem and trying to figure out a plan to decarbonizing campus. And so, you know, we took a, you know, a, a relatively critical look at, you know, where, where are those buckets of carbon and, you know, how can we start to create a, um, a you know, a roadmap to uh, mitigate, you know, mitigate that carbon. Um, I would say, we, you know, we had, a uh, tremendous amount of success with uh, campus efficiency. I would think, you know, definitely primarily. Uh, we have a big steam plant and natural gas steam plant. So there was a lot of efficiencies integrated into that system, but there was not a plan to decarbonize the steam plant that was even looked at at the time. Um, we had a pretty big... Um, uh, carbon portfolio with our purchase electricity as well. And at the time, there was no um, really ability to alter that mix through uh, the electrons that we that we were, you know, purchasing, uh, that the university was purchasing from our u- utility supplier. And, um, and then the transportation um, uh, part of climate action, there, you know, there's a lot of carbon associated with all of our travel, and not as much as the, not as much within the fleet, but mostly with our campus commuting, our international travel, and all the other university-related travel for faculty, staff, and students. Everything that's kind of captured officially, right, through a travel authorization, we track that. We realized that in order to make real traction, we needed to do something uh, that that really gets people thinking about the the operations. So. Um, 2014, the campus wrote a new strategic plan and that strategic plan was finalized and began in 2015. We were able to, uh, get sustainability language and metrics into that strategic, into that strategic plan. And, you know, it was pretty innovative at the time to, you know, have a, a large camp, you know, a medium ish large campus, in, in you know, the U.S. to have a strategic plan that had sustainability in its tagline and all throughout the um, strategic six strategic directions. And uh, so that helped us, you know, it helped um, allocate resources. But, you know, the, the amount of resources it takes to, you know, truly um, reach carbon neutrality and climate neutrality, um, that's, ex- you know, that's extensive. And so we've realized with... Um, you know, now in 2020, with everything that's going on socially and with the climate crisis, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of pressure, which we should be from students and faculty and, you know, internally from ourselves. You know, it's time for us to really uh, figure this out. We don't have, you know, there, there isn't a lot of time left um, to, to avoid ecological overshoot with climate change. And, 
And so we decided to develop a new um, climate action plan. And, and where are you right now in the process of developing that new climate action plan? Do you have any insights that you might be able to share with us, or are you still in the, the very initial phases of putting that together? Yeah, no, we're at, the, we're at the last phases of putting it together. We had um, anticipated having our, our 1.0 release in, on Earth Day 50 of 2020. And, you know, it's, those of us who have been doing, you know, environmental sustainability work, social justice work, really missed the chance to celebrate, you know, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. I mean, we did it in our own way, you know, online. But, um, the, you know, the, the silver lining and the benefit was it um, was able to um, allow us more time to reflect and, and think about, uh, you know, building efficiency, space utilization, teleworking, and that, those sort of uh, so kind of decarbonization solution ideas and how can we integrate that into the climate action plan. We didn't um, shelve the process. We continued to work on the plan. It was just a, a, a different pace. We are on track to having a draft available for review in November. And then the idea is for us to um, aggregate uh, comments and uh, you know finalize the kind of our one point um, o version of what we're calling the app cap would be the app cap 1.0. And, uh, we are going to release that in January. So, you know, since the, the initial climate action plan back in, in 2010, you know, a lot has changed within the energy ecosystem over the past 10 years. Um, and you know, I, I'm wondering if there are any sort of new or creative solutions that have come to the table since that initial plan that you guys are integrating and looking at in this new plan here that will be released in November? Yeah, there are. So um, the university owns the local utility, New River Light and Power. And we, the, the, our utility is about to begin a new contract phase with uh, a different energy supplier uh, from before. And that is going to allow us to have more flexibility with our energy portfolio. So um, we will be able to um, buy clean energy off the open market. So um, we're looking at solar, hydro, and other um, forms of kind of non-carbon energy, uh, primarily solar and hydro. Uh, and uh, we have that begins January 2022 that contract so we're working on trying to figure out you know a fundraising campaign to um, pay for the additional cost of solar or hydro if there is one and it sounds like there's gonna be so that's you know something we're trying to prepare for um, that purchase electricity is a uh, pretty big part of the mix so you know, if we're able to clean that source, then we're well on our way towards, you know, climate neutrality. And then the other um, kind of the other area is our steam plant that's currently burning natural gas. And we recently did a climate action, uh, a steam plant climate action plan study that looked at uh, different options such as uh, replacing existing boilers with electric boilers 
and or firing existing boilers with renewable natural gas or or biofuels. And so that that study was uh, conducted or completed this um, this past summer. And um, so you know we're you know that's that's helping us really trying to figure out kind of what's next for the steam plant because the boiler the current three boilers are ending their um, their their life phase. And then, in addition to that, really transportation is the um, is the next um, you know big area to focus on, or the, another big area to focus on, and and that's a little more tricky because. We can't require everyone to ride the bus or walk or bike to campus or, or you know, drive an electric vehicle to campus. Uh, so there, there, are, there are strong behavioral components to that part of our climate action plan. And, um, and then the, the initial idea is to expand our offset program to include all commuting. And diving into that transportation piece, I know you guys just had a, a recent announcement of the procurement of a new electric bus and charging station. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, so um, that's through the Apple Cart uh, transit system. Uh, you know, Appalachian State and Apple Cart are, are not the same entity, but um, they probably would, they definitely would not exist like they do without App State here. Uh, we provide a significant amount of their funding. And uh, so, yeah, we work very closely with um, Craig Hughes, the Apple Cart director, his great partner, and uh, we tag teamed on a grant um, uh, through the state of North Carolina that was part of the uh, Volkswagen settlement. And yeah, we received uh, money to purchase Apple Cart's first electric bus and uh, charger charging station. So, very excited about this uh, because you know we need to transition. Um, you know, transportation to, uh, you know, non-combustion sources. And, you know, we're seeing that happen aggressively in California. You can't even buy a natural gas or, or diesel bus in California anymore if you're a transit system. So, you know, that's happening pretty fast out there. And we're just really beginning here. Really exciting news. I know I was, I was very excited to see that here recently. And uh, hopefully that's just the beginning and more EV buses are, are on the way with uh, future uh, rollout of VW settlement funds in North Carolina as well. Um, so turning back the clock a, a little bit, uh, so not long after instituting the the first climate action plan, Appalachian State held its first Appalachian Energy Summit event back in 2012, um, an annual event designed to convene universities across the UNC system to set and establish system-wide goals for energy savings and sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Appalachian Energy Summit some of the goals that were announced at this first summit and the recent announcements about our progress towards those goals. Yeah, sure. So the Appalachian Energy Summit really began in 2012 as an annual uh, event where we gathered people in person here in Boone to share best practice related to clean energy. You know, so we're, we targeted energy managers, faculty at universities, um, uh, you know, CFOs and a lot of other campus leadership, including chancellors, sustainability officers and directors, uh, recycling coordinators, transportation managers, just anybody that is kind of working in this clean energy sector, uh, you know, in higher ed. We 
we started with this initial goal of trying to help the UNC system save a billion dollars in avoided energy costs by tw- by the year 2022. That was our target. And we worked really closely with um, uh, the state of North Carolina and the, and the um, utility savings initiative. And so people like Reed Conway that many of you know, uh, you know, helped us and Lynn Hoey over the years, who recently retired as, um, was, was, you know, instrumental in really kind of helping us uh, track energy use, uh, you know, in, in state buildings. And, and so this year, when COVID happened, we uh, decided not to have our summit. And instead, we, uh, uh, we've, we've been hosting a webinar series this fall. And our first series, we had Reed Conway and Sushma Macemore from, from the state come and join us. And Reed had a really big announcement. He announced that we reached our target. You know, we actually did hit the one billion mark, and and, and it looks like we hit it early, and it, it and it's even looking more like it's one point two five billion. Really exciting to reach that. You know, we don't take credit for you know all that work necessarily, but we feel like we we contributed to really furthering knowledge and and like I said before, you know, sharing best practice and. And, uh, you know, we're really proud to be a part of it. So we had a secondary goal that was $2 billion by 2025. And so that's where we're really uh, focusing our efforts to support uh, the state to reach that, um, you know, $2 billion, um, $2 billion in avoided costs by 2025. Yeah, so on this episode today, we're also going to hear from Casey Collins at, at Duke University, who outlined some of their bigger picture goals and targets uh, obviously, there's a very different dynamic taking place there, being that Duke is a private university. Uh, so I- I'm curious, can you talk about the opportunities and challenges with meeting some of your climate goals and your energy savings goals while being a public university and part of the greater UNC system? Yeah, you know, so we're we're state funded. We, we you know we do have. Um, uh, some very, you know, generous friends that, that, you know, give financial resources to the university, but the scale that we're looking at for, you know, for this, um, transition to clean energy, uh, is, is enormous. And, and so for us to be able to, you know, decarbonize our energy portfolio, it's going to take, you know, millions of dollars, um, potentially annually. And, and so, you know, that the, the, there, there's a wide variety of perspectives on what we should be doing with our state money, right? And so that in itself is something that we have to navigate. And, it's, and, you, and then you add a pandemic and, a, you know, a national recession to, to the mix. And, um, and there's even more scrutiny on what, you know, what we do with our money. So, you know, I've really focused on trying to find a mutualism between, um, you know, with our with, with our urgent need to respond to the climate crisis and our urgent need to also be fiscally responsible during difficult times. And, uh, you know, so making, you know, getting better at making the business case for sustainability is something we all need to, you know, keep working on. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, I think a lot about trying, you know, how can we how can we de-risk the future? Um, I know that the cost of solar is going to continue to go down, um, but it but it doesn't help us 
when the cost of energy and fuel is so low, right? And um, and and so we are, you know, we'll we'll keep working on, um, you know, a strategy to try to fundraise for the you know, that, you know, the, the, the premium costs of, you know, for example, buying solar or installing solar, you know, using state resources to install, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a, you know, megawatt, two, three, four megawatt system on campus is, is, is difficult right now um, because it doesn't cost the same. But also, we add a you know one two three megawatt system to campus, and it also just barely scratches the surface. And so, you know, how do we really make the the largest impact with our resources? Um, I, I am in the opinion that it's not through local installations. So, you know, we we've got some cool installations on campus. You know, we we at one point we had the largest wind turbine in the state. You know, it's a small, medium scale, uh, community scale, 100 kilowatt system that's, um, you know, kind of become a little bit of an icon here in Boone. Um, those that like wind, it's just really, it's really pretty to drive into town and see the wind turbine, you know, spinning. Um, but that system w- was never intended to be a solution, right? We'd have to have hundreds of those um, all over the community to even make a dent in our footprint. So that was really through, you know, an attempt to educate, you know, people about renewable energy. Um, and it is a clean source of energy. And then, you know, throw on the top of that, we, you know, a handful, we've got a 55 KW solar system and a 30 and, you know, a few, uh, some other small ones. And, you know, I think the total, you know, adds up to less than 200 and, and uh, you know, still just barely making a dent. And it's real expensive, um, to install rooftop solar, and we don't have a lot of rooftop space. If we blanketed campus with solar, um, it it still wouldn't offset our um, our you know our portfolio. So we probably need to do this through purchase solar on the open market, or some sort of um, you know power purchase agreement. Um, you know, I think it's going to probably be the most responsible way to decarbonize our purchase electricity. And then, you know, the other big challenge is our steam plant. And, you know, that steam plant is, um, you know, provides a big chunk of, or almost all the heat for campus, right, through steam and hot water. And, um, you know, fortunately, from my perspective, we're, you know, the the boilers are at the end of their life. And so we are going to be forced to come up with a different strategy and, you know, I won't be doing my job if I don't continue to push us to make the right decisions um, to make sure that the you know the the future um, heating for campus is it needs to be decarbonized in some way. And so that's you know that, that's what we're that's what the climate action plan that we're you know currently writing is going to really hone in on. Absolutely. So looking you know looking out on the horizon five, 10 years, uh, what excites you most about opportunities and sustainability at Appalachian State University? Looking towards the future, I can't wait to see what kind of innovations that we're able to, you know, to do here on campus. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to the, um, the, the day when we're starting to design our first energy positive building on campus. You know, that's something that we need to do. 
And uh, so really trying to, um, you know, really push us in that direction, because I think that um, that really de-risks our, our building portfolio as well, because of, you know, um, you know, especially if we're able to use, you know, integrated design uh, methodology to, to design construction, we'll be able to build buildings that are um, uh, cheaper to operate. They're going to have uh, much less maintenance and they're going to be very durable going into, you know, long into the future, hopefully beyond this kind of 30 year window we typically design and build for. So, you know, th- those are the things that I think about that make me excited. Well, Lee, you know, it's always great to to catch up and, and find out what's going on at my alma mater, Appalachian State University. Uh, and before we, we let you go today, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to plug the Find Your Sustainability uh, podcast that you host uh, there at Appalachian State University, where you're diving into the three E's of sustainability, uh, where you've already had a chance to interview guests like the former EPA administrator, uh, Gina McCarthy, which is awesome. I can't wait to uh, check out that episode. Uh, and from what I hear, you have a few surprises on the horizon as well. Uh, so for the Squeaky Clean Energy listeners, you can find that podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts and at the University Sustainability website as well. Lee, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Matt, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're not done just yet. In this episode, I actually had the privilege of interviewing two energy leaders from two different universities here in North Carolina. So with that, we'll take a slight change of direction and move into the facilities side with our next guest who helps to oversee the day-to-day energy operations of another esteemed university here in North Carolina, where Hill also shed some light on some pretty major clean energy announcements. So without further ado, here's your two-for-one special and our next guest on the show. Clean energy. With over 14 years of industry experience, our guest seeks to combine engineering knowledge with a holistic understanding of how people and technology interact to meet the world's changing needs for an efficient and low-carbon energy transition. In his current role as energy manager, our guest is a member of the leadership team of Duke University's Utility Business Unit, serving over 40,000 people in 20 million square feet of top-tier research, healthcare, and academic facilities. His project portfolio includes strategic planning, operation support, engineering, energy and water conservation, renewable energy generation, and regulatory and policy engagement efforts. Friends of the pod, welcome Casey Collins, energy manager at Duke University to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Welcome, Casey. Matt, really appreciate it. Glad to be here. And so, you know, diving into some of your um, carbon goals and sustainability goals. So overall, uh, Duke University has established some pretty robust and ambitious goals as part of your uh, sustainability strategic plan, uh, including a 20% reduction in energy use in on-campus buildings built prior to 2009 by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2024. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about some of these goals and where we are towards achieving them? Yeah, sure thing. So uh, you're right. Duke University uh, has committed to 
climate neutrality by 2024. Uh, we have, as you mentioned, the sustainability strategic plan and then the, the uh, climate action plan, the CAP plan, which you might hear me refer to. Um, and that encompasses um, all kinds of things that are really in, um, in the carbon footprint of Duke. Uh, not just energy in our facilities, um, but also air travel on behalf of the university, um, even the carbon footprint of faculty and staff commuting to campus. Um, and so that's, uh, that stems from uh, the 2009 commitment, um, the American College and University President's Climate Commitment, uh, for which Duke was an early signatory. And really my role um, is, you know, as a facility manager, as a utility manager, is to work on decarbonizing that energy footprint, which historically has been about two thirds of the total total carbon footprint we're talking about for the university. Uh, so as you mentioned, yes, in that there's some specific goals that, that deal with, um, with, with energy uh, in the facilities and utilities. Uh, we have our 20% goal, uh, 20% reduction goal for energy efficiency. We're more than halfway there. We're at about 13% um, with a few more years to go. Uh, also included in the climate action plan, we're um, a mandate to get off of coal um, in our campus steam plants. We did that. Uh, there were some requests and, and goals for renewable energy on campus. Uh, we've got close to a megawatt of renewables um, on campus right now. Um, and then there are, there's two goals for which we'll be perpetually working on. Um, one is to, to continue to monitor and engage on the uh, on Duke Energy's decarbonization because we are a large customer of theirs. And also uh, continue to keep up with new technology as we design, build, and operate all of our facilities. Great. So, yeah, just a, a follow-up on that. I'm curious about um, some of those projects that you've already talked about. Um, so from, from the energy efficiency perspective, you mentioned that you're, you're already halfway to, to meeting some of those goals. What are some of the projects or initiatives that, that you have undertaken to get to that, uh, to that mark of halfway? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I guess one that's easiest to understand would just be uh, LED lighting, you know, retrofitting our lights uh, from uh, incandescents and, and high intensity lamps and fluorescents to LEDs. Uh, those are substantial cost and maintenance savings associated with this projects. Uh, we're talking about a couple megawatts of demand um, from, from a sort of capacity planning perspective uh, and, and several million kilowatt hours of savings there. So that's a component of it. Um, as we've built buildings between 2009 and now, um, our, our buildings continue to be more efficient. Um, and a large part of that is Duke's uh, intentional pursuit of green building practices. And then um, there's some more, I'll call them in the weeds type projects, right? So we're a really research intensive campus and making sure that we are effectively fine tuning the amount of ventilation um, that our laboratory buildings really need has is, is really been a, an effective strategy for us. So managing HVAC systems. And then uh, to the other side of that, uh, you mentioned there, there's already been nearly a megawatt of, of clean energy projects deployed on campus. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those projects? Yeah, I'm glad to. So our largest on-campus um, renewable energy installation is a canopy over top of a parking garage, um, sort of near the corner of Irwin Road and Research Drive, for those that know the geography of Durham. Um, uh, and we've got a couple smaller rooftop systems on some buildings. Uh, got a little bit of solar thermal uh, that supplements some domestic hot water needs. Um, but that is, um, that's sort of, on, that's our on-campus sort of behind the meter portfolio. Can you talk about uh, some of the challenges 
that that you've encountered when deploying renewables on campus? Um, so there's a couple, couple, couple barriers, and and I, I would say by and large, like the engineering community is can figure out how to do anything, <laughs> um, you know, but, but figuring out how to do it again in this sort of sustainable sense that I'm talking about, especially economically and operationally is the, really the challenge. So the, re- the renewable generation that's feasibly deployable at Duke University is really just solar thermal and solar PV, right? We don't really have a wind resource in the middle of Durham. Durham sits at I don't know, 500 feet above sea level. Um, and we don't have any geothermal resource, right? I mean, and I'm not talking about geo exchange heat pumps. I mean, truly a geothermal uh, energy source, like say Iceland has. So um, we spoke a little bit about PV and the economics of that. Um, you know, the current net metering rules in North Carolina would limit me to a megawatt of behind the meter net metered solar. Um, per account for me, that means that the maximum deployable solar PV um, capacity on our campus is five megawatts. Um, our campus peaks at about 83 megawatts. Um, now, I don't want to give everybody the idea that if all of a sudden the net metering rules changed, we would have 83 megawatts worth of PV on campus because um, that's a fair amount of land area to actually actually build that up. Um, but we would love to see some changes in that. And the reason is like from a practical standpoint, um, I can make a bigger change in load swing from the public utilities point of view by turning off or on say a chiller or the air handling systems in an operating room or a bunch of fume hoods in a lab building. So um, we think that it's very, the ability for the public utility to, to handle behind the meter something bigger than one megawatt is, is very doable in the case of a customer like us, which is really a transmission level customer. Um, so that's one, that's one hurdle. The bigger one, um, and there's, this is I'll say partially solved with the, with the green source program that we're going to get to is um, Duke University recognizes that it's a large energy consumer. We would love to have a different level of access to offsite um, know, energy. Uh, and so that's particularly, you know, renewable stuff, whether it's wind or electricity, I'm sorry, excuse me, wind or PV in the electrical world. Um, and we are, uh, have, have worked for several years, uh, in the renewable natural gas space, um, trying to, um, well, in, in, in some cases going so far as to developing a pilot project, um, up in Yadkin County, um, and then continuing to track the growth of that industry in North Carolina and the Southeast, uh, and trying to figure out how to get renewable natural gas effectively piped into, you know, public utility systems for us to use it as an offtaker. You know, the big thing is that to, to summarize that largely speaking, we don't have a way to work with a third party energy uh, developer provider or whatever you want to say, and then sort of pay that wheeling fee in North Carolina, right? We don't have an open energy market where we could transact separately on say transmission and distribution. Got a little more flexibility in some ways on the natural gas side, but um, yeah, I would love to see the continuing evolution of uh, energy markets in North Carolina. Yeah, well, and I, I think that that leads into uh, our next conversation topic here. Um, so you, you were talking about bigger picture uh, just at the end of your remarks there, but in the interim, you know, there are some programs that uh, have been offered from utilities like Duke. Um, and for example, the, the green source advantage program, 
Um, and so for those who might not be in the know, uh, in recent uh, news, uh, Duke University just announced your participation in uh, Duke Energy's Green Source Advantage program to procure around 101 megawatts of solar, making the university the first academic institution to participate in the program. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit more about what the GSA program is and how this announcement came to be? Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to share. And, and I, I think we're, we're, we're all excited that we got to, uh, to, to make this announcement. And of course, um, it basically means now we're at the starting line for, for this actual, these renewable energy projects um, who are, uh, then need to get built and hooked up and, and commissioned so we can become an off taker. But yeah, we, um, the Green Source Advantage program is a, is a, effectively a sort of a tariff, sort of a green tariff, uh, I guess we'd call it, um, cross between a green tariff and a virtual PPA type program, uh, that, that Duke Energy developed. Um, this was about a three year journey, um, from, uh, the house bill in the North Carolina legislature that, uh, enabled its creation. And then of course the year plus of time at the North Carolina Utilities Commission, uh, for the actual rulemaking pro uh, process. So, um, our 101 megawatt deal um, with Pine Gate Renewables, uh, who will be the developer on this. Uh, we think, um, we reasonably think that this will net us about half of the electrical energy that we would consume in a year, which is no, that's not small. <laughs> um, um, and to sort of scale it to the, I guess I'll call the, uh, a typical residence in North Carolina, you know, from an electrical energy perspective, Duke University is probably 20,000 times bigger than a, like a typical North Carolina single family home, maybe a little bit bigger. So um, we're talking about in excess of 250,000 megawatt hours per year. Um, that will be, you know, that will be re retained um, for, for which all the environmental attributes will be retained, right? So um, uh, that's part of that program is we get the RECs, we get, which gives us the, the right to claim the carbon footprint reduction. Uh, this is, um, a really big deal, you know, maybe 20 in the neighborhood of 25%, um, of our carbon footprint, um, that gets, gets knocked out, uh, from an energy perspective. Uh, and so this is like, this is like how we move the needle, right? <laughs> you know, so access to these sorts of things are, are m a much bigger impact, um, uh, than, than on-site PV for somebody like us. Have the locations for the projects already been selected and has ground been broken on those projects? When do we expect to see these go online and for the university to start um, acquiring electricity from, from these projects? Mm, yep. Yep. Uh, so the, the sites are out there, you know, they are under control of the developer. Um, I won't disclose them quite yet. Um, but, uh, some early site work is going on. It's expected that, uh, in about 2021 quarter one, quarter two of 2021, these things will be operational. It does depend somewhat on, on the Duke energy Carolina's interconnection cube. But, um, so we're glad to be working with pine gate on that. Yeah. So, so bigger picture, um, what makes the GSA program attractive for an institution like Duke university? Yeah, big picture. It's the it's been the best um, it's been the best program to date uh, that allows you know such a large volume of carbon free energy uh, to become available to a to a retail customer. 
And that's really what it comes down to. Um, and we're, um, you know, we're in this for a substantial amount of time. This is a, a 20 year deal that we're doing here. Um, and of course, over that length of time for the volume we're talking about, um, there's a cost associated with, with participating in that. Um, but we also think uh, it's a smart um, it's a smart play, um, even potentially from a, a risk mitigation perspective, because we've been able to negotiate um, uh, and, and sort of fix some of the costs associated with that energy over the life of this deal. Uh, there's not really any other thing like that um, in North Carolina and certainly not in the Duke Energy Carolina's rate base. That's what it, that's the, that's the big picture stuff. So I'm curious, um, you know, thinking about, uh, the, the implementation or the, the announcement of this, of your participation in the program, you know, what do you see as the, the primary driver that, that led to this announcement? Was it economics? Was it meeting the university's, uh, goals as part of the sustain, uh, strategic sustainability plan and your carbon action plan? What, you know, what do you think led us to the point where we are right now? Mm, yeah. Uh, the climate action plan and that climate neutrality goal, absolutely uh, the biggest driver. Um, but it's not, it's, it's not, it's not just universities like Duke wanting to say we're carbon neutral for the sake of being able to claim that. I mean, there, there is, um, I think it's a good thing that we're pursuing that, but I think uh, large institutions like Duke and there are others in the country and certainly in the region uh, who really believe that it's important to um, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So you also mentioned um, some of the other institutions in the region, and and we talked about uh, just a minute ago as part of this news that Duke was the the first academic institution in North Carolina to participate in the program. So do you foresee um, other universities or academic institutions following your lead? And what advice do you have for some of these uh, these organizations that are considering potential participation in the program? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I think I do foresee some other participation. Um, of course, this, this program is crafted towards large energy consumers. I mean, I think you have to have a single account threshold of a megawatt or a, an aggregated account threshold of five megawatts to participate. Uh, Duke University is at least one order of magnitude larger than the next largest private institution in North Carolina. Um, and then most, most other private institutions are probably two orders of magnitude in terms of energy uh, capacity and or excuse me, demand and consumption than we are. Um, I, th I think there will be other participants. Um, uh, in fact, I know the city of Durham and the, and Durham County are exploring this right now. They've got an, an RFI, uh, out to, to try and, uh, uh, make a purchase, uh, or at least evaluate proposals, uh, with the goal of, uh, moving towards a purchase similar to what, uh, the city of Charlotte has done. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit tougher for the public institutions. Um, some of that's related to economics. Um, of course, the economics of operating a university with the hit that COVID has put on our economy is substantial. There's no way around that. Um, and so, you know, my advice is um, uh, to folks that are interested in pursuing this are, is one, um, you know, you have to identify, you have to identify development partners, you know, right now if you want to participate in this, um, whether you're, whether you're a private, uh, corporation, um, a private nonprofit or a public, uh, institution. 
Um, and then you have to be ready to ask a whole lot of questions um, about the the program. And I also think it's appropriate that you uh, that you really engage like you know all aspects of your executive management team on this. Um, there's not a lot of places where people do uh, 10, 20 year contracts, right. For any other thing they might buy. Um, uh, and so that long-term, that long-term deal, it means that you really need to understand the risks associated with this, uh, this kind of transaction. Um, and I don't mean that to say that it's an overly risky thing. In fact, by and large from the, from the, from the, uh, sort of overall sort of trading perspective, renewable energy is pretty reliable. (laughs) Um, and I know that 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 doesn't mean it's easy to manage necessarily on on the grid once it's there, but it shows up, right? Um, and the PV now has a you know twenty year track record of, of being a very reliable technology. So um, it's a it's I don't think that like the carbon math isn't hard, um, but understanding the economic and uh, risk of a of a deal like this means that you really got to get buy in at all levels of the institution. Fantastic. Um- and since you you mentioned COVID, uh, I, I am I am really interested, um, and I think our listeners would be too to to hear about how COVID has impacted on campus energy use, managing um, some of those generation assets, and and just overall long term planning. Um, could you just tell us a little bit more about some of these aspects? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, to your first question, what, what is, what has COVID done to the energy profile, um, across all sectors of our buildings? And, and again, we have, we have building, we have one of everything on campus in terms of what our buildings do, um, across all sectors, um, between March and now, uh, we've seen, uh, tremendous energy reductions, both from a demand perspective and a consumption perspective. Um, and in fact, it was enough to see at our, again, at like the sort of the substation level of, 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 um, of where we're served by Duke energy, we've seen, we saw reductions north of 10 megawatts, right? That's a, that's a combustion turbine worth of, of, uh, demand reduction in some cases. Um, and from a energy consumption perspective, we saw, uh, 20, 30, even 50% reduction levels in, uh, in energy consumption. If you were to look at sort of week to week charting, now, some of that is rebounded, right? The campus is back open. Um, the health system is still open, um, but it's operating in a different way. So we're still learning about this. We know for a fact that, um, you know, behavior patterns have changed. Um, so people are not staying in buildings as long. Uh, and some of that is, you know, by design. Um, but uh, we have we have seen huge reductions in plug load. Um, so just the sort of you know, baseline level of stuff that people have plugged in. And that's because, uh, for example, Duke staff members are like working from home. So they've taken a printer or maybe they've taken a dock and two monitors home. And that's just not there to be plugged in in the office. Uh, there is uh, research equipment that's just offline until people are going to be there. Um, research itself hasn't shut down and, and in fact, has, has mostly continued. But that means that some of the peripheral equipment in laboratories has been turned off. Um, and, uh, we are seeing though, um, sort of a sustained and a little bit of an increase in certain categories of lighting energy use. Um, and that's because, um, uh, operationally schedules are spread out across the day a little bit more, right? So there's a little more might, uh, like a little sort of later evening 
lighting use. But by and large, the consumption is still well below what it was before the pandemic. Now that we have a reoccupied campus, uh, energy consumption in heating, ventilation, and cooling systems has actually gone back up. Um, and in fact, in some cases, surpassing pre-COVID levels because um, you know there's guidance from the professional engineering community and certainly the public health community that increasing ventilation and increasing filtration is a good thing to do uh, to keep people healthy. So uh, again, you know, as most folks listening, I think know that the summers in North Carolina are hot and humid. Um, and so the amount of cooling energy uh, and then even dehumidification type energy that we've got to use uh, to keep buildings healthy has increased. Well, so I, I've got one more question for you and, and it might be uh, somewhat difficult just, you know, given the, the uncertainty that you have right now around energy planning with COVID uh, taking place, but you did mention, you know, a, a continued growth trajectory for the university. Um, and yeah, I know we're also just coming off of the heels of this really great announcement about the, the GSA program. So not to take anything away from that, but do you have any sort of insight as to, uh, kind of what the next steps are for clean energy planning and how to reach kind of that last bit of, uh, decarbonization as part of the climate action plan for the university? Our, our, our planning falls into three buckets, really. It's what are we going to do off campus with energy supply? Green source, of course, is part of that. What are we going to do in our utility systems to either you know, fully decarbonize or make them more efficient? And then what are we going to do in our buildings? Um, uh, so I'll, I'll work in reverse order from that. So the building stuff is actually the most time consuming um, um, but because we have to get into all these individual building technologies. Uh, one thing I can highlight, um, is continued, um, uh, continued rollout of, uh, what we can call an, our, our sort of energy data analytics efforts. So we continue to, 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 um, to want to integrate our building automation systems. And these are the, th- these are the computers and hardware that really run HVAC, um, to integrate those with sort of more advanced data analytics packages. Uh, so we can pr- pursue, I guess, what, what what the engineering world would probably call a continuous commissioning program, right? We want to continue to sort of like let computers process the huge amounts of data that any building automation system generates to look for, you know, sort of these in-between opportunities to continue to, to, to increase energy efficiency. On the utility side, um, we're looking at a, a, a further... Uh, further evolution of our heating systems. Um, and that looks like actually a reduction in the operating temperatures that we use for our heating systems. And that enables electrification, meaning we can use big sort of industrial heat pumps rather than boilers. There's a, there's a fundamental, um, energy and exergy efficiency in that, um, in that operation Coupled with the fact that we are getting now through green source more of our electrical energy from renewable sources means that electric electrification of our heating systems is a tremendous opportunity to to pursue carbon reduction. Um, and then again, um, uh, stepping up one level, uh, we want to continue to engage not just with um, our utility suppliers um, uh, to to figure out other ways to procure more renewable energy. Um, but in some cases we're, you know, we want to talk with, um, you know, regulatory officials, policymakers, um, and really 
you know, be, we, we want to be part of a smart conversation, right? We're not, we're not just shouting, Hey, hundred percent renewable right now. Like I know that I know the technical challenges of that because we, you know, I'm part of a team that has to run a microgrid, right? It's not, it's not magic, right? And it takes smart people and it takes smart decisions. Um, and so we want to be part of that conversation. And part of that will be on the electrical side. Part of that will be on the natural gas side. Um, while we are continuing to try and drive down the amount of natural gas we use, um, pursuit of renewable natural gas is still something that we're, we're really intrigued about. Well, you know, I, I did want to just commend you and your team at Duke for all of the, the wonderful strides that you've made um, and commitments towards clean energy um, and being such an active partner um, with groups like NCSEA and being engaged and, uh, you know, staying abreast as to what opportunities there are to continue to deploy clean energy and meet some of the carbon goals that you've set out for well, first, let me say thanks for the compliments. Um, again, um, I've I've got a great, uh, great mentors and great managers um, that are uh, part of the Duke family and Duke organization, and um, I certainly uh, have a great team working working for me. And um, so, I want to make sure they get the credit they deserve. And and I and that's some I think that sort of ethos is really important to um, to tackling this. Uh, this this thing that it not not that not just this thing that is climate change, but uh, just just tackling this energy transition that we're going through, right? So nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. Um, nobody has a monopoly on the one right way to run a system. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize that um, it's a it's a team effort. Um, and it's not like it's not like a single team that you can put together and 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 point at and say you're going to do it. But um, I think it's just important that the engine, the engineering world, the policy world, um, the finance world continue to come together to work on this. Um, but we 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 need we need creative solutions all over the place. And so I'm glad to be, I hope, contributing to that. Um, and glad again to work with with people that are doing that. So. Yeah. Well, you guys are definitely bringing creative solutions to the table and have been a leader in the clean energy space here in North Carolina with, I'm sure, lots more developments to come in the near future. So, Casey, thank you again so much for joining us on today's episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. I'm really looking forward to continued conversations and hope to have you as a guest on the show here again in the near future. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. And I would, uh, would welcome that invitation. Right, so you survived the second episode hosted by yours truly. I feel so lucky to have the opportunity to interview such incredible clean energy trailblazers every other week here on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And Casey and Lee are no exception. So as a quick personal story, Lee happened to actually be a professor of mine while I was back at Appalachian State University, where I took a course of his on sustainable buildings. Since then, I've always been fascinated with innovative, cutting-edge buildings practices, many of which you can now find on university campuses like Appalachian State. Ah, so you thought I might have forgotten about the poorly received section where I shared my latest clean energy dad joke with you. Well, you're wrong. I'm actually contractually obligated to provide the worst energy Twitter joke I could find on each episode. If you don't like it, take it up with my agent, which in this case is actually my coworker, Daniel Pate, who ensures the sarcasm runs deep here at NCSEA. All right. So what do you call a TV show discussing renewable energy? A solar panel. 
And my key takeaway today is there are huge opportunities in front of us to continue to decarbonize our grid and expand the clean energy economy. To make these monumental steps, it requires collaboration from everyone impacted or involved in our energy ecosystem. And in this case, with universities, it requires input and buy-in from the student bodies these institutions serve, all the way up to the university leaders from varying departments across the board. Collaboration and an openness to a diversity of thoughts and ideas has led us to some of the creative, innovative solutions you've heard about today including the Green Source Advantage program. North Carolina has long been thought of as a leader in academic excellence through the UNC system and other esteemed universities like Duke, where the intellectual capital is bar none leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the world. Now we have the opportunity to showcase these institutions as world leaders in the energy sector as well. Roadmaps like ASU's Climate Action Plan will shape the direction of our new clean energy economy, while Duke's GSA announcement has ushered in this new era of energy leadership. And of course, let's keep the conversation alive on the Twitter sphere. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E for future episode ideas, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 36 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.